So this morning, continuing this series, One Heart, One Mission, if you're new with us today, great time to join with us because in this series, we're looking at the values, the vision, the mission that God has entrusted to us as a particular congregation. So if you're saying, well, you know, what is this church about? What are we here for? What are the things that um, we're trying to accomplish? We've summarized that very simply in this way. Um, We believe that every person in the world needs Jesus, and every believer in Jesus needs a great church to call home. So we're not simply sharing the gospel so that people come to faith, we're also actively engaged in planting churches here in this region and around the world. And we do this because the call of God on this congregation is to bring the transforming life and love of Jesus to our members, to our neighbors, and the nations in every generation through the power of the gospel, shown to people in word and deed and sign. That's what God's called us to do. And the reason we're involved in that is because God has sent his son to save the world, not to condemn the world. And he went to such an extent that the scripture describes it this way, he died the death of the cross. He went from the highest place of glory and honor to the lowest place of humiliation and degradation and pain and, the, and death, and as the creed says, descended into hell. And he did this because God was intent on bringing back to himself the entire creation, which had been despoiled by sin and brokenness, high treason, rebellion against him, but rather than judging that creation, God decided to save that creation and make of us the objects of his mercy. And that means not simply that we're forgiven right now, marvelous and magnificent as that is, and not just that we have eternal life when this life is over, astonishing and thrilling as that is, But we're brought back into God's presence, into communion with him. That communion, which was humanity's greatest treasure in the Garden of Eden, that communion, that presence of God that was broken when humankind rebelled against God, that communion is restored through Jesus Christ and brought back to us now so that God dwells with his people and his people are invited into his presence. And that's why what we refer to as worship is so vital to our understanding of what God is doing in our lives. You see, one of the things that happens when you come to Christ is a tremendous inversion of values. The things that you once thought were boring and perhaps laughable become the things in your life which are the most delightful and the most joyful. Things that used to make you laugh now make you weep. Things which you used to mock, you now find your greatest treasure. Because a great transformation has taken place in your life when you met Jesus Christ and you were liberated from all of those things which held us captive to live a life which was constantly looking for something, but we didn't know what it was. What was it we were looking for? Well, we were trying once again to find that communion, that fulfillment with the eternal. An ancient Hebrew writer of wisdom put it this way, God has placed eternity in the heart of people. And so this eternity-shaped hole in the heart 
is something we keep trying to fill up, but we fill it up with temporal things, and temporal things can never satisfy the eternal longing that we have. When God frees us, he frees us not just from things, he frees us for himself to bring us into his presence because our hearts were made for communion with him. All human beings are worshipers. We worship God or we worship the stuff he made. And the whole story of humanity is summed up that way by Paul in the book of Romans when he said that people, rather than giving glory to God, the creator, instead of worshiping him, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Every human person gives glory. Every human person gives adoration. Every human person ascribes to Something or someone, ultimate authority, ultimate meaning, ultimate beauty, that is what they worship. And it could be their own intellect, it could be their own passions and pleasures, it could be the accumulation of wealth, it could be coming to a position of power, it could be constantly seeking to have the security that comes from certain human accomplishments, it might be physical beauty, but all of these things are pursued in the belief that somehow when we achieve them, our hearts will finally find their true home. But all of them leave us empty. And then God comes and makes himself known to us in the beauty of Jesus Christ. And our hearts go, oh, that's what I was made for. He is who I was fashioned for. I was sharing the good news of Jesus one time with a student at Vanderbilt University just a few years ago up in Nashville. And as, as I, I was walking through this presentation of the gospel with him, he said, this just makes perfect sense. I'm really thinking about becoming a Christian, but I, I think, I'll, I think I'd li- what I'd like to do is just put that off for about 10 years. <laughs> I said, Really? And you know what he's thinking. He's a 21-year-old undergraduate student. He's got some oats to sow. He's got wild stuff to do. And here's, here's the real problem. He thinks that Christianity is a religion. He thinks that it's a kind of set of beliefs, a kind of philosophical proposition that you can assent to mentally and add into your life that comes with a certain set of duties that you would embrace and take on, especially once you get married and you want to stabilize your life and have a moral framework in which to raise your children. It's a religion. Now, I'm, I'm just going to tell you that Islam can do the same thing for you if that's all we're talking about. You don't need Christianity. Judaism, Hinduism, all religions can do that. You see, Christian faith is not a religion. It is in the Bible a communion, a communion with God in which he comes and makes his presence known to us and dwells with us and invites us into his presence. And so I said to him, brother, let me, let me ask you a question. If you, if you saw the most stunningly gorgeous fellow Vandy undergraduate super wealthy and absolutely beautiful and she looked at you and said i love you would you say to her that's cool 
well, I think I'm going to put this off for about 10 years. <laughs> he said, no, that's not what I'd say. I said, you know, I didn't think so because you look smart to me. You look really smart. I said, you see, what happens in real conversion is we're captured by a beauty and a privilege of a presence. And the presence of God is the greatest gift he gives to us. It's why he delivered us. I'll quote an old movie to you, The Ten Commandments. Some of you have seen it. You may not have read the book, I know, but you saw the movie, okay? <laughs> and so in the movie, Charlton Heston playing Moses comes and appears before Pharaoh, played by Ewell Brenner, the hero of all bald men. And <laughs> just saying. I mean, thank God for Michael Jordan and Bruce Willis, right? Okay, very good, all right. But Ewell Brenner, the original pioneer. And so Moses comes in before Pharaoh. And he says to him words which we all know and which have resonated down the millennium. He says to him, let my people go. Let my people go. They're slaves in Egypt. I've, I've heard the cry of my people. I've come down to deliver them. Let my people go. And the movie gets it largely right, but it doesn't finish it. In the scripture, Moses doesn't show up in front of Pharaoh and simply say, let my people go. He says, let my people go that they may come and worship me. We were freed for worship, for communion with God. And you say, well, that seems rather egocentric of the Almighty. I mean, he brought us out so we could worship him. But you see, let me put it to you this way. Does God need worship? No, of course not. All the theologues are suddenly going, oh, no, no, no. God is a self-existent one. God needs what? Nothing. God did not create all the holy angels, the cherubim, the seraphim. If you read the book of Revelation and see a worship service in heaven that's going on with their antiphonal cries back to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, worthy is the Lamb, all the elders of heaven, all the living creatures, all the angels as they sing and bring adoration to God. When God created all of that and, and that worship began to rise before him, God did not go, oh, I feel so much better now. That really met a longing in me that I kind of needed, really. I, I needed the affirmation. That's not what happened. No, you see, God's presence is the gift to his people. Worship is a grace that is given to us before it is an offering made by us. Because what happens in the presence of God is the response of our heart to his beauty and his glory and his majesty. And of course, with the angels, we cry out, you're worthy, you're holy, you're beautiful, you're magnificent. We bow before you. Because it isn't a religion. This is God. And when human beings encounter God, that changes them. And the story the Bible keeps telling over and over again is the story of a double invitation. A double invitation. The first invitation 
is God coming and saying, come into my presence. Come back home to my heart. Come into my presence. There's a second invitation that arises in response to his. The second invitation is us saying to God, please come and dwell with us. Because the greatest need of every congregation is the living, manifest, tangible presence of Almighty God among them. And that is what we as a church value. It's not so much that we value a religious duty. It's Sunday, it's 10, be here. As it is a person who has loved us. If I said to everyone here and watching online, do you love the Lord? Many of you would say yes. And if I said to you why, you would say because I'm smarter than my neighbors who aren't here. No, that's not what you would say. Why do we love? The Apostle John says we love him because he first loved us. And so there is a reciprocity that's down in our hearts that comes back to the Lord because he's bathed us with his mercy and showered us with his kindness and bestowed astonishing grace in our lives and loved us to life. And so how can we not love him? It's Mary Magdalene when she sees him raised from the dead and she hugs him, Jesus, because he's alive and he's here and the heart has found its home. You see, friends, we were made for heaven. We were made for the throne room of God. And the writer of Hebrews brings that out to us in in this important text in chapter 10, I'm going to read you two sections, brief sections of Scripture, Hebrews 10 and 1 Peter 2, if you want to follow along. And we're largely going to be in uh, pages 28, 29 of your, of your devotional guide, if you're following along there. But listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Would you say that with me? Let us draw near. Let's come near to God. With a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, and hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. Now I want you to notice the language that's used here. It's language that's about the temple. The writer is writing to Jewish people in the first century. The temple in Jerusalem is still standing. There was an outer court, there was an inner court, there was the Holy of Holies. And that Holy of Holies was cordoned off by a, a great curtain. And that curtain had angels woven into it, guardians to the tree of life. And a priest would go into that holy of holies once a year, and only the high priest. But when Jesus died on the cross, 
And he cried out, it is finished. And we knew that the, as we sang a few minutes ago, our debt is paid. And we knew our sins to be forgiven. And we celebrate that and we mark that. When he breathed his last and he cried out, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Something happened a few blocks away in that temple, in that holy of holies. What was it? The veil, that curtain was torn, torn in half. There was an earthquake, the building shook, and the veil was torn. That was not so God could get out. <laughs> like, let me out of here. I'm tired of living in this box. <laughs> no, the veil was torn, not so God could get out, but so that we could come in. But only priests can come in. Only priests. You say, well, am I a priest? <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at, look at this text. As This is 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5, and I'm going to read verse 9. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy what? Priesthood. You are part of a holy priesthood. You are priests. What do priests do? Well, they offer sacrifices. And you say, well, well I didn't see any goats in the parking lot. No, the goats are in a couple of seats near. Oh, no, that's a different issue. Okay. <laughs> Pastors don't know. It's not like we go sheep, sheep, goat. Oh, definitely goat. Okay. No, no, no. He doesn't say animal sacrifices here. He says spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man, and he makes our offerings up to God, our sacrifices that we make, sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of service, sacrifices of finance, sacrifices of song, sacrifices of prayer. This is the worship Christians offer up to God, and they are purified and made acceptable in heaven. They are the same as angel song. Your song is the same as angel song because when it arrives at the throne of God, it is passed through the hands of Jesus, your great high priest. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God extends an invitation to you to come into his presence. It's a feast which he is offering. He invites you to come into his presence. Come into my presence. He makes you a priesthood. When you go back and you look at the consecration of the very first high priest in the Bible, in this particular temple system, Aaron, Aaron is robed and crowned He's graced with a robe. He's graced with a crown. And then he has sprinkled on him blood and oil and water. Now, every one of you, let me put it to you this way. Every one of us who have been baptized, who have had the water applied to our life, that water was a sign of the blood 
and the oil of the Holy Spirit, how many of us have been robed in the righteousness of Christ and crowned with glory and honor? You are robed. You are crowned. You are sprinkled with blood. You are sprinkled with oil. You are sprinkled with holy water. Every single person in here who's a baptized believer in Jesus, you are a priest and you have holy of holy privileges. And so God says, come into my presence. I made the throne room of heaven, I designed it for you. And rather than angels standing there with swords saying, none shall pass, there are now angels gathered at that throne, ushering us right up to the front row and saying, behold the beauty, oh taste and see that the Lord is good. Because there is no presence like his presence. And he's the one who extends the invitation. We looked last week at the issue of hospitality. There is no greater hospitality than God extending an invitation to come into his presence. He is the one who prepares the feast and calls us to his table. He's the one who, when we arrive, washes our feet and cleanses us. He's the one who feeds us and communes with us. He's the one who places his name on us and commissions us to go back into the world. So we are priestly people. And the sacrifices we offer up, Peter says, are deeply spiritual. But their spiritual character does not mean that they are immaterial in their essence. It's not as though worship is something invisible. The word worship, one of the Greek words for worship, means to kiss towards, to kiss towards. Now, if you know someone you love, going back to my Vandy student, you want to kiss them, don't you? I mean, no one who's, who's married, at least I hope not, looks at their wife or their, their husband and, and goes, well, Sunday, 10 o'clock, <laughs> weekly kiss. The counseling center is open tomorrow at 9 a.m. <laughs> Make an appointment. Um, that's not how that works. No, no, no. You, you long for your heart's beloved and you delight in them. And that's what worship's all about. It's not just what happens on Sunday. Though the gathering of God's people, God's priestly people together, is a renewal of everyone's baptism. Every time you separate yourself from all the other activities and everything going on in the world and you gather together as priestly people, you are saying and affirming again, I'm a baptized person. I'm a person who belongs to Christ. My faith and my trust are in him. And apart from all the other things in the world, I am going to put my hope and my trust in him. And this is, this is why the scripture says the worship that we offer up is described this way. May my praise to you May my praise to you, this is Psalm 141, verse 2, be as incense and the lifting up of my hands is the evening offering. You may wonder why some people lift their hands. They're just being priests. You may wonder why some people come down and kneel and fall on their face. They're just being priests. That's what priests do. People's hearts respond to God as he pours his love into them and he reveals his beauty and his majesty to them. People in the Bible do this all the time. And it's just the common response to the uncommon majesty and beauty and sovereignty of who God is. The holiest people in the Bible are blown away by the vision of God's majesty and glory. I mean, I don't know where you are this morning on the spirituality scale, but can I just point out to you Isaiah, who had already written five chapters of the Bible when he saw the Lord. 
Now, can I just tell you, if you've written five chapters of the Bible, that's kind of high on the spirituality scale. And when he saw the Lord, and he heard the angels crying out in God's presence, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah did not go, wow. Isaiah said, whoa, whoa. Because, listen to this, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Moses said, God, God, show me your glory. I want to see you. Show me your glory. And God said, I can't do that for you, Moses. I can't show you my face. If I did, you'd blow apart. It would kill you. Because we're so different. The chasm between God and us, the the moral chasm, the chasm that's due to our sin and rebellion is so great, it has to be bridged by a meteor. That's why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to forgive your sin so only that your sin could be forgiven. Jesus came to cleanse us from sin, to make us priestly people so we could be in God's presence. And so God said to Isaiah, when Isaiah said, I'm a sinful person, he said, well, okay, hang on a second. And an angel came with tongs and grabbed a fiery coal off the altar in front of God's throne and touched his lips. How's that? That's, that's a tough day at the office right there. Let me just tell you. <laughs> Get your mouth burned. And God says, I've taken your sin away. Because the fiery love of God purges the guilt of our sin and the pollution of sin. And what the Savior does cleanses us so that we can stand in God's presence and hear his voice and offer praises to him. But then lastly, there's this double invitation. Remember I mentioned that? God invites us into his presence. There's also an invitation we make to him. Worship is a grace God gives to us before it's an offering we make. So God says, here am I. My hands are outstretched. Come to me. You know, you can't buy this presence. You can't bribe your way in. There there is no premier counter. There is no first class ticket. I'm just simply opening the way. Come into my presence. Come, feast. But then you'll sometimes also hear a worship leader stand up And just before leading a song, say something like, Lord, we welcome you. And that's good too. There's nothing wrong with that language. Because listen to these words from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus speaks to a church, a church, people who are Christians. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in now often that verse is used for people who are not yet christians jesus is knocking on the door of your heart if you'll just open up your heart to him he will come in that's not a proper use of that verse if jesus wants to come into your heart he's not jesus not poor little jesus outside standing in the cold in the exposure let me in let me in that's not the image if jesus wants to come into your heart he's not going to knock on the door he's going to knock down the door I'm just here to tell you because he loves you and he will take up residence in your heart and move the furniture around and start refashioning your life for his beauty and majesty no 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 this verse is far more profound because it's to a church it's the church of Laodicea and Jesus says I wish you were hot or cold you're lukewarm tasteless And because you're lukewarm, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Yeah, it's just tasteless. 
a church, a church had lost their taste for the presence of God. They didn't savor the presence. They didn't cherish the presence. They'd reduce their faith to duty rather than delight. Oh, yeah, we get together on Sunday, and we'll sing a couple songs, and we'll say a couple prayers, and the preacher will tell three points in a poem and throw in a couple of jokes, and we go, isn't that great? And we'll leave. And it doesn't really make any difference. And more often than not, it doesn't. Because we've gone through the motions rather than hearing the Savior knock and say, I want in. Churches have dismissed the presence of God from the gathering together of the believers. And at Spanish River Church, I want you to know, we will savor, we will cherish, we will dwell in, we will long for, we will celebrate, we will wait in the presence of God. And we will love the one who has loved us to life. And we say, Lord, come, come. You who said to us, come, we say to you, Lord, come. Make your home here. Because my friends, do you know what changes people? What they worship. Psalm 115 says, you become like whatever you worship. He was telling them about idols. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. Mouths, but they can't speak. They have hands, but they don't move. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and what, is, what kind of healing does he start doing? Opening blind eyes, deaf ears, quiet mouths, paralyzed limbs. He starts doing that. Why? Because Israel, the whole country, it was assigned to the whole country. You've been in the rapture of idols, and they have changed you into stone. But when you meet Jesus... Hearts of stone become hearts of flesh, and they begin to beat with the beat of the heart of Jesus from resurrection morning, when on that Sunday it began to pulse again with life, and he burst forth from the grave, and he said, I have opened up heaven for you. Come and be with me. I made you for communion with Almighty God. Don't stand outside anymore. And so, my friends, let us cherish the presence of God. Amen? Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, you grace us with your presence, and we welcome you in ours. Help us now as priestly people, sprinkled with blood, sprinkled with oil, sprinkled with water, to do what the Scripture says, to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace where angels are, where seraphim and cherubim cry holy, and here in your presence know your face and taste and see that you are good through Jesus our Lord.